Welcome to Dysfunctional Life. Today, we're going to talk about the halides and thyroid function and what does the research really say? So if you've been worrying about iodine, bromine, fluoride, chlorine, this is an episode for you. Welcome to This Functional Life, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, purpose. We're going to deconstruct norms, uncover your deepest desires, harness your physical and mental health, and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what you want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking complex science and making it easy to understand and integrate into daily life. Join the journey to make this chapter the best ever. Let's get thriving. We know that iodine is essential for thyroid function. It helps us convert T4 to T3. It helps the thyroid actually manufacture T4. It is an important ingredient in our body. However, we have other halides. So halides on the periodic table are in the same row as iodine. So your halides are going to be your chlorine, your bromine, and your fluoride. Out on the internet and in media and social media, you'll hear things like, we need to detox from these halides, or I need to take super physiological dosing of iodine to displace these halides in my diet, or that chlorine just swimming in a pool may cause thyroid dysfunction. So I want to go through the research because a lot of times these things get picked up and get repeated and said, but the people saying them haven't necessarily gone out and looked at the research and really seen what animal studies show and human studies show. So let's start with the first one. And, and this is the one that actually has the most research behind showing that it actually can and does affect thyroid function, which is fluoride. So obviously fluoride is a, a compound found in nature and there's actually places in the world that have high levels of fluoride naturally occurring in their water supply, in the soil, and they'll have problems with a thing called fluorosis, which change dental function and discolor the teeth because, teeth because it is so high in the water. And in the U.S. and some other Western countries, we actually add fluoride to the water. And depending on where you're at, the addition of that fluoride is varying in the amounts. Now, I'm not a fan of tap water, generally speaking, unless it's been filtered because there's hundreds of things in it that you don't want. And if you're filtering, probably the next step would be then distillation if you want the cleanest water source. But tap water generally has a lot of things that we don't want in it, and we can easily filter it and make it better. But let's look at what really fluoride does. So fluoride, years and years and years ago, was the drug component that we used in the case of hyperthyroidism, because at very high doses above 5 milligrams per day, easily north of that, the you know, 10 milligrams and more can be used to suppress thyroid function and slow a fast moving hyperthyroid patient. So that has long been used. So let's talk about what, what is the amount that we might see? So what the literature shows and what the research shows is that five milligrams or more a day, but it's particularly north of that can and will affect thyroid function. And it actually is, is taken up on the thyroid receptor through the receptor on the thyroid. So it has a metabolic effect on thyroid function. Now, how much do we often see in water? So in the UK, they did a study with 0.3 milligrams per, per liter of water, right? So we're not talking five milligrams, we're talking 0.3, 0.3 milligrams per liter. 
And Canada did a study looking at 0.1 milligrams per liter in humans and saw no effect on thyroid function. That includes TSH levels, T4 levels, 3T3 levels, thyroglobulin, antibodies, the whole nine yards. And they looked at lots of other hormones too. So the amount found in water is not going to have a direct effect on your thyroid. Now, am I saying fluoride is good for you? No, but I'm just saying the amount that we find in our water doesn't seem to show that. And when they looked at people that live in those areas with high levels of fluorosis from extremely high levels of fluoride, they didn't see any difference in their thyroid levels than they did in people that did not live in that area. What about things like fluoride in foods? So fluoride exists in foods. And as a matter of fact, things like pickles and spinach have fluoride in them that naturally occur. But we're talking very, very low levels. So for instance, spinach is 0.3 milligrams in a dose. Asparagus is 0.2. Your white rice is 0.06. So there is some fluoride found naturally in foods, but nowhere close to that high, high dose that's necessary. What about toothpaste? There's roughly, depending on the toothpaste brand, somewhere between 1,000 to 1,500 parts per million per gram dose of toothpaste, which that adds up to be about 1.5 milligrams of fluoride if you're eating your toothpaste, not brushing your teeth and spitting it out. So you'd have to be eating it. And that means you'd have to have to take four doses a day and eat all of it. Most of us aren't doing that. Hopefully, if you're using a, a toothpaste that has fluoride, you're spitting it out. So you'd have to eat it. And it actually has very low absorption rates without being eaten. So you'd have to truly, truly eat it. You're not absorbing a ton of it through the mucosal membrane. When we look at fluoride, fluoride is the only one of the halides that has clear research saying that it absolutely can slow thyroid function, but it's in that five milligram and up dose. Let's look at chlorine. There's been theories about chlorine because it's a halide, because it, it is in the same basic periodic table column, that it may be highly concentrated in the thyroid if you have exposure. But the, the pump or the receptor in the thyroid that uses iodine is it really attracted to or has high receptor capacity for bromine chloride either? It's not really clear that it does that. So we look at the research, you know, in studies looking at both animals and humans, chlorine that you would normally get exposed to in swimming pools, jacuzzis, chlorinated water does not concentrate heavily or, or concentrate onto that receptor on the thyroid that normally would pull in iodine. Now, there are some things that do show up with chlorine that aren't great. So chlorine, especially in indoor pools, indoor jacuzzis, because there's no place for that chlorine to outgas out into the air, into the open, it gets confined. And there is a relationship with chlorine, with like asthma, allergy. It is a skin and eye irritant. So that's why if you're in a chlorine pool and you're swimming around in it, it can make your eyes red and irritated. So it does irritate the skin and it may exacerbate breathing difficulties if you're swimming indoors, but by far it is not the same impact as fluoride on the thyroid function. So you don't have to worry about, you know, if you've got a pool that it's got chlorine, that you're going to have this toxic exposure that will affect the thyroid. When we look at the studies, the only place where there, there, there was possible impact of chlorine is subclinical thyroid disease in preterm infants. Like, so in, in human studies, there's no effect on thyroid function, even at 20 parts per million. So we're talking very high levels of chlorine. 
And when they did rat studies and also monkey studies, we couldn't see it. You know, so I would say I wouldn't worry a ton about chlorine other than the effect of it on your your skin and lungs. And especially if you're swimming indoors and it bothers you, maybe pick outdoor locations to do that. So let's talk about bromine. So bromine has been claimed to be similar to fluoride in that it can cause thyroid disease. So bromine often exists in things like your uh, baked goods, in other foods. We see it everywhere. And actually, bromine has now been identified as an essential nutrient. There is a disease called good pasture disease, which actually comes about when we have somebody on uh, intravenous feeding because they are not getting bromine in that feeding and that it, it that it causes this deficiency. So bromine is actually a very minor but necessary nutrient. It's been claimed that bromine also pushes, you know, pushes out iodine or that you can take really high doses of iodine to store, to kind of push out toxic levels of bromine, which isn't true. When we look at iodine deficient animal studies, what we found was when they were looking at iodine deficient rats and they fed, were fed a diet containing 4,000, I believe it was 4,000 to 16,000 micrograms of bromine per kilogram of body weight for four weeks, right? So these animals consumed somewhere around 32,000 to 533,000 times an average human dose. So we're talking way beyond physical doses. And even from this, this study, they said they did see a change in thyroid function in these rats. But I don't know about you, but I don't know how anybody could get 530,000 times the amount that would normally be found in food. It's very hard to draw an, a response from this and say that bromine intake in a normal diet is going to cause iodine deficiency or that you need to recover from bromine toxicity because you've had too much in the diet. Because all the studies today show that bromine is... A, number one, an essential nutrient, and number two, in normal levels. And number two, unless you're taking in, I don't know, 530,000 times what you would normally take in, you're not going to see a change in thyroid function. Where do we find bromine? It's naturally occurring in things like shellfish, fish, shrimp has fairly high levels. You know, we're looking at like somewhere around two, two and a half to four milligrams of bromine per 100 gram serving. If we look at thyroid function in healthy people and compare it to the urinary bromine levels, in the studies, they concluded that there was no relationship between bromine and thyroid. So there really isn't. And when they looked at these studies in a particularly a blinded human study, bromine in three doses was given to males and non-female pregnant females for 12 weeks. So men and women, non-pregnant women. And the doses were, I believe, zero four and nine milligrams per kilogram per day. And, and let's talk about what a normal day might look at. It's somewhere between two and eight milligrams per day total. So not per kilogram. So we're talking significantly higher doses of bromine were given than what you would get in a day. They tested things like TSH, T4, thyroid binding, globulin, your estradiol, progesterone, prolactin, luteinizing hormone, follicular stimulating hormone, and they checked the metabolic profile. So things like your chlorine or chloride, sodium, potassium, all of those metabolic things. And they saw no changes in the blood chemistry or urinalysis or those hormones. So bromine is number one, an essential nutrient. And also number two, not truly something that is going to alter iodine's function at the thyroid. It's important to have bromine because we, we need it because it's essential for forming type 4 collagen 
We need that for things like kidney membranes, blood vessel linings, nerve tissue, collagen for, for bone building matrix. So all of those things are important. So let's summarize this. So what's, what's real about the halides? Number one, chlorine is a lung irritant, particularly if you're swimming in an indoor pool or in an indoor jacuzzi, and it might exacerbate asthma, allergy, skin irritation, eye problems, but high oral intake is not going to increase problems with the thyroid or cause problems with the thyroid. And if we look at it, there could be some risk of cancers, particularly at extraordinarily high intake, but even that is inconclusive. So fluoride. Fluoride, out of all the halides, is the only one that we know disrupts thyroid function at superphysiological doses above 5 milligrams a day. But we find it naturally in things like spinach and asparagus and, and even tea. We also know that even dental treatments, most of it isn't being absorbed in the mouth, that you have to actually eat it and you have to eat a lot of it. With all that being true, we know that fluoride obviously will affect thyroid function, but at the levels you would normally get in a toothpaste or in a normal food exposure is going to be relatively low. Now, I do know that there are some studies also looking at fluoride and that it may play a role in acne and other things and periorbital dermatitis, which is a nice way of saying a irritation and rash around the mouth. So it could be playing other roles. And I generally am not a fan of using it, but it is not going to cause thyroid problems at the levels you find in toothpaste. And then last but not least, bromine. This is actually an essential nutrient. It is not toxic in dietary doses unless you're even taking really, really high doses. But at 500,000 times a normal dose, it wasn't found to be so. And that was a blinded study. So a really high quality study. So yes, some highly processed foods contain bromine compounds. It's not the bromine itself that makes it toxic or not good for you. It's the fact that it's an unhealthy food, highly processed usually containing a lot of refined carbohydrates that are not good for you, but it's not the bromine in there. The other side of this argument is how much iodine do we really need? There's some misnomers out there in the research. Um, and actually, I would say the research isn't clear on what the amount of iodine levels should be in each person. But when we look at some of the studies that were done, particularly in Asia, where there's a high amount of iodine intake in the diet through dietary means, what we saw is that at very high levels of dietary intake of iodine, we see an increase of thyroid toxicity and thyroid inflammation, right? things like Hashimoto's. So iodine in adequate levels is going to be helpful, but if I'm taking super physiological levels, it can actually make Hashimoto's worse. When we look out in the literature, it's clear. That research is actually pretty clear. So the other side of that is when I look at iodine intake, I want iodine intake that is actually around where it should be in your diet every day. So what's the right amount of recommended intake? So the re recommended dietary allowance set by the government may not always, and in most cases, is not always based on what's optimal because we know now that that is highly individualized based on your genetics, your nutrient profile, your daily activity. It's very hard to say that everybody needs the exact same amount of a particular nutrient. What does the government say? So if we look at adults, 19 years or older, in males and females, it's 150 micrograms a day. To a, a woman who is pregnant or lactating, we're looking at like 290 micrograms per day. 
And in most cases, we're going to get that from food sources and or water sources. Uh, seaweed obviously being a very high iodine food. And that's why when we look at studies coming from Asia, where seaweed is a significant portion of the diet, we see these very high amounts of Hashimoto's and thyroiditis, which is inflammation of the thyroid, in excessive intake of seaweed because the iodine levels are too high. Most fruits and vegetables are actually poor sources of iodine. They don't carry very much. A lot of commercially prepared breads and things like that may contain a potassium iodate or a calcium iodate as a dough conditioner, which is similar in compound to iodine. So we don't see a ton in our food. So could you be deficient in iodine? For sure. The United States and Canada and several other countries have iodized things, iodized salt obviously being one of them, and since the 1920s. And that's because much of the soil, particularly in the Midwest and throughout kind of the, the middle part of the United States is very low in iodine. And that was a way to increase iodine levels in the general population. And according to iodized uh, salt labels, it's about 45 micrograms of iodine per gram of salt. I know most of the people listening to the show are probably not using iodized salt. But if you eat out and you're eating prepared foods, you are. So you're probably getting some of that. Now, dietary supplements contain all kinds of different amounts, anything from probably 72 micrograms up to really, really extreme intakes. What do we see? So iodine deficiency obviously has effects on growth and development. And when we're looking at a developing child, it can cause intellectual disability. So a true deficiency can be problematic. And that's why it's important for a pregnant woman to have adequate iodine. Under normal conditions, the thyroid and iodine levels are tightly controlled. TSA secretions, thyroid stimulating hormone secretions, increase when iodine intake falls below 100 micrograms per day. So in many cases in the beginning, if TSH is starting to climb, it may be a lack of iodine. And so if our intake of iodine falls below about 10 to 20 micrograms, we're going to see hypothyroidism. So if I remove most levels of iodine from my diet, I may have that. And that's true. So who would be at risk? So pregnant women, of course, vegans and people who don't eat dairy products, seafood, eggs, because they're all good sources of iodine. So if you're vegan, you have a higher risk. And people who live in areas where there's iodine deficient soils, right? Oddly enough, even outside the United States, places like the Andes, the Alps, the Himalayas have much greater risk for this because they have very little. And then if you have very, very low levels of iodine intake and you eat very high levels of foods that contain goitrogens, cabbage, broccoli, cauliflower, the brassica family, kale. Now, in most cases, you could not consume enough of these with normal iodine intake and induce an iodine deficiency. Maybe if you're reducing them, maybe if you're eating super physiological doses, but if you're eating tons of those goitrogenic foods, and I'll add to that list like soy, cassava also, and you're deficient in iodine and or deficient in vitamin A or iron, then you're more likely to have that. So you could have an iodine deficiency. But again, I wouldn't take out those very healthy foods like the brassica family of cabbage, broccoli, and cauliflower for fear they were causing problems with my thyroid. The other part of that is make sure that you're cooking those and consuming those in a way that reduces the goitrogenic effects. You don't have to cook them to death, but dropping them in hot boiling water for a minute just to help break down some of the phytic acid and goitrogenic activities does reduce that activity in the food. 
So let's talk about when we have iodine deficiency, what can we see? Obviously, fetal development and infant development can absolutely uh, be affected by iodine levels. Cognitive decline or cognitive function, especially during childhood, results have shown that iodine deficiency, particularly in children, is going to cause both mental development and decreased mortality in children that happen to be iodine deficient. Obviously, we want to make sure our children and fetal development that we're getting adequate amounts. Now, let's talk about another area that often gets looked at and and spoken about, particularly in functional medicine circles, and it's fibrocystic breast disease, which is a benign condition where you have lumpy, painful, palpable fibrosis in the the breast. So that means if you were to touch the breast, they're lumpy, bumpy, and they may become painful, and they may become painful throughout different times of your cycle. And it's really common when we're reproductive, and it leads to harder to read um, mammograms because the breast tissue is so dense. Well, breast tissue has a high concentration of iodine. Some research suggests that adding iodine supplementation in adequate amounts, not super physiological amounts, can help reduce some of that fibrocystic breast disease. When we looked at studies, there was a study that they randomly assigned 111 women in reproductive years with fibrotic breast tissue and a history of breast pain. They received either zero micrograms control. 1,500 micrograms or 3,000 micrograms or 6,000 micrograms of iodine per day. After five months of treatment, the women receiving 3,000 or 6,000 micrograms of iodine had significantly reduced breast pain, tenderness, and nodularity compared to the ones that were receiving less. So this may indicate a dose-dependent amount. Could that work and could that be something that women need with fibrocystic breast disease. That definitely has some research and I've used it clinically with good results. But there are other health risks from excessive iodine intake, particularly in someone who may be deficient. So if I'm deficient, I have I may have a goiter, which is a swollen thyroid, elevated TSH levels, definitely obviously hypothyroid. But here's the thing. So if I give iodine to somebody who's deficient, we can also have a rapid uptake of that iodine that can cause Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So when we have somebody that may have been deficient for a long period of time, too much or too little iodine can actually cause the goiter to be worse, can cause the inflammation to be worse. And it's actually through a creation of an an inflammatory response. So when we give iodine, we have to be careful, particularly in somebody who's deficient, how much we're giving and how often, because we could easily cause excessive thyroid intake of iodine and then resulting goiter and thyroid storm and Hashimoto's. So if we look at that, we go, okay, what really happens when that happens? Because this is an area of confusion, particularly in the functional medicine community, because there are a a few people who had put out uh, information online about deficiency of iodine and, and that the research was clear that high levels are really good for you. And that's not, again, what the research shows. And so here's what what a lot of the research is showing. So Hashimoto's is obviously uh, inflammation in the thyroid. It's an autoimmune disease where the body's attacking the thyroid. And if I'm deficient in iodine, absolutely, that could be part of the process. Um, But when we look at excessive intake of iodine, we see the same thing. So we can see Hashimoto's as well, because we have an excessive uptake of iodine by the thyroid. 
And we have these cells called thyroid follicular cells that absorb a lot of this. And what it does is when we get that process going and we have this excessive increase in, in these thyroid follicular cells, what we have is an increase of reactive oxygen species. So that is inflammatory response. And we see an activation of, of the NF-kappa B pathway, signaling pathway, which is an inflammatory pathway. Excessive iodine intake also increases inflammasome activity. Um, so all of this then starts to cause this inflammatory response. And then we see an increase of interleukin-1b, which is another inflammatory response. So, so these are the things that lead to Hashimoto's, those excessive reactive oxygen species, inflammasomes, and interleukin-1b. So when we're looking at Hashimoto's, it's about enough, not too much. So when we're looking at iodine in all of the halides, it's about enough and not too much. And you have to be careful about how much you take. And there are studies looking at reducing iodine intake in somebody who may be taking um, excessive supplementation and a reduction in Hashimoto's antibodies with the reduction of intake of iodine. And I've seen that clinically. I've seen both sides of it. I've seen somebody who was deficient and we see Hashimoto's and I've seen somebody who was taking it. And once we remove that super physiological dose and got it into the appropriate dose of what we need every day, we saw a reduction in antibodies. So it's not so cut and dry that you need a lot of iodine and it's not so cut and dry that these other halides are damaging. It's really, really about what's appropriate and what is really true. So I hope you found this helpful. So if you have thyroid problems, don't worry about chlorine. Don't worry about bromine. Worry about fluoride if you're eating it. And again, I'm not a fan of it for other things, but fluoride is the one that has shown to have true interaction with the thyroid. And if you have iodine issues and you're not sure, the best way to test iodine is not in the serum. The serum is not a good marker. Would it be a decent surrogate marker for deficiency? Yes. But what you really need is a urinary 24-hour iodine and then a challenge of iodine dosing and another 24-hour urine to see the uptake. That will give you a clear indication if you need enough or need more or need less. And if you have somebody prescribing iodine, I highly recommend that you do that test to know where you're at before you do it. And if you have Hashimoto's, again, I do think it's important to know those numbers and know that prognosis before you start taking really high doses of iodine. Thank you so much for tuning into this functional life. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. You're here for a reason. I celebrate your commitment to claiming your youthful energy and stepping into this next phase of life, feeling vibrant, healthy, and powerful. I am so proud of you. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD. And if you want a chance to share your story with our tribe or find out more about working with my team, you can sign up at chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. Again, that's chatwithbetty.com slash podcast. See you next week. Bye-bye.